you know, trauma is subjective. What I deal with, if it's traumatic to me, it doesn't matter what you think about it. This is how I experience this thing in my life. This is how I feel about this circumstance in my life. And so if I feel like I need to speak to a therapist about it, no one else has the right to tell me that I'm being dramatic or that I don't need to seek help for this thing that might seem trivial to them. Like if it's a big deal to me, then it's a big deal to me. And I have every right to process that however I choose to. That was Mina B. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 193. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. Today, we are talking about how to better manage our mental health. And we're joined by a guest who is a therapist and a social worker, and she shares some wonderful practical suggestions with us, as well as plenty of her own personal stories that made me feel less alone for sure. We'll get to that in a minute, but first I want to take a second and thank the 400 plus people in our Patreon community. Thank you so much for supporting the show. These are the folks who fund this show, who are paying $1 or more per episode as a real-time vote for the kind of world that they want to live in, a world that's filled with honest and judgment-free conversations. This podcast is and will always be free, of course, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone... I'm asking you today to join us by going to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your financial support is what will allow everyone involved in creating this show to be paid. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Oh, and there are lots of fun bonuses that you'll get in the community as well. You get exclusive content, you get first access to live event tickets, retreat spots, and more. There are unique bonuses at each of the different funding levels. So $1 per episode, you know, $2 per episode, $4 per episode, etc. And I bet that you will find a level that's perfect for your budget and for the type of content and community that you would most love to be a part of this year. So you can learn more about all that and join us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Mina B. Mina is a licensed social worker, speaker, writer, and author of the book, Rivers Are Coming. She's a major mental health advocate who takes pride in self-care and shares tips and gems on her mantra-filled Instagram account, where her username is at Mina underscore B. That's M-I-N-A-A underscore B. In this episode, Mina shares a wonderful mix of personal stories and practical tips for taking good care of ourselves and our mental health, including how to find the right fit therapist and how to overcome some of the most common barriers to mental health treatment. She also gives great advice on how to practice self-care at work, particularly if you don't work from home or for yourself. One of the parts of this conversation that I appreciated the most was about friendships and mental health and how our friends are not our therapists and shouldn't be expected to fill that role. Mina talks about that and also about the importance of thinking beyond self-care to community care and how healing is in fact a social justice issue. I so enjoyed getting to know Mina and learning from her in this conversation, and I hope that you do too. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. Awesome. We are good to go. Mina, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Nicole. Thank you for having me. So I would love to start by asking you about your online book club, The Literary Social. I also am like a big book nerd. You will see that probably towards the end. I will ask for book things. But um, will you tell me the story of creating that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I love reading books. However, I specifically love fiction. Um, I, for me being a social worker, people often come to me for book recommendations related to um, self-help. And I, I laugh because I'm like, interesting. It's like ironic because I personally am not a big fan of self-help books. Um, and the reason why is because I often find the information to be very, very redundant. And it just doesn't pull me in. Like I'm the type of person that I'll read a self-help book and I'll read just like a chapter and just put the book away. Where reading a novel, I feel like it really brings you, especially the type of genre. I like to read uh, drama. Sometimes I like to read suspense and thriller and different things like that. But you really can, even though it's fiction, you really can get connected to a person because oftentimes these writers are writing about a true experience, despite the fact that it's fiction. And I feel like it can really bring you into another person's world. And it has all those details and elements because it is a work of art. So I decided to start a book club because often book clubs that I come across, they cover a variety of um, different genres, including self-help. And I was just like, well, I'm not really a big self-help fan, so I'd rather just start something for people who are like me and really just like three novels. And that's how it came about. Like reading books is a form of self-care for me. And I wanted to do something fun, especially since my personal Instagram is very information heavy. I also wanted to step away and start something that was a little lighthearted and didn't require too much thinking and contemplating. And my book club came about. I love that. Uh, People in this community will know that I usually self-describe as a recovering self-help junkie (laughs) because I, I mean, that was like all I read for a while and to the point where I was just reading all these books and not really implementing anything and, you know, some of them were good and some of them kind of fell short and I just wound up after a period of like a couple of years feeling just this overwhelming sense of, oh my gosh, there's so much wrong with me that I have to fix, right? Like this book says this thing I have to fix. This book says this thing. And I finally was like, okay, well, what if my life is not a problem to be fixed? <laughs> and it doesn't right. mean I, you know, don't believe in personal growth. Obviously, that's like a huge driving factor for me. But realizing that actually I can step away from consuming that type of content. I'm like, maybe read a book for fun, actually. <laughs> like maybe read some fiction. And uh, I can completely relate to that love of novels. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, reading fiction, because I'm also a writer, um, and the first book that I wrote was a collection of essays and poems titled Rivers Are Coming, but I'm currently writing a novel myself. um, And I hope to work with the publisher in the future that that's something I'm writing now. So with writing a novel, it's important to read a lot of novels. Um, so my life is just real, pretty much consumed my novels, but I think what you said was on point too, that oftentimes the work of healing can be so, um, filled with consumerism. Um, and this idea that in order to fix ourselves, we have to buy this and we have to do that. And we consume all this content. Um, and then when the content can be conflicting or it's just so much that you don't really know how to sit with it. You know, so for me, I like to take a balance. And when it comes to reading, I just say self-help is, uh, I'm not going to get on that show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So 
I guess speaking of online spaces like Mm -hmm. your book club and all that you typically share on your personal Instagram, will you tell me a little bit about this social media break that you recently came back from? I am in my third month, yeah, third month um, of a hiatus from my personal Instagram myself, and I would Mm -hmm. love to hear a bit about kind of your experience and what led up to that. Yeah, so I took a break um, pretty much the whole month of January. Um, And the reason why is because for the end of 2019, like maybe starting around October, November, I started to feel really, really exhausted by social media, but I was struggling with myself because I was asked, you know, I was going through this back and forth, whereas like, um, my, my Instagram page pretty much is a business page, you know? Um, so I'm trying to grow a following. I'm trying to grow, uh, gain opportunities as well, but I also just enjoy giving out the information that I give out because it also gives people access to mental health strategies that some people would gain from going to therapy that many people uh, don't have access to. And so I utilize my page for a variety of reasons. What happened is though, around the end of 2019, I was really setting my goals for 2020. And I found myself going back and forth with is this burnout or is this me lacking discipline? And I found myself having this battle because I was just like, you know, yeah, you're tired, but you need to push through. You need to hustle. You need to get up and you need to post and you need to write this content out and you need to do all these things. But then a part of me was like, oh, you know, I'm not happy. But in the back of my head, I, I did not realize I had that hustle mentality rooted in me where it's like, you know, you need to just work and work and hustle hard. No, you can't take breaks. And I didn't realize that was embedded in me. And so I really had to sit down with myself toward the very end of December. And I really had to sit down with myself and ask myself, like, you know, is this me lacking discipline or am I really just not interested in doing this? And why am I not interested in doing this? And I realized it was because I was burnt out. And I, I realized I was losing interest in Instagram. Um, I found myself not having the desire to be on social media. I started to even like question my role as a therapist and if therapy um, was something that I wanted to do. Did I want to continue providing information on this platform? And I realized that once I began to question something that I know for sure I'm passionate about, that's when I realized the difference between it's not that you're lacking discipline. It's that you're burned out because you know that this is what fuels you. You know that this is what you're passionate about. And once you lose that spark, you have to fill your cup back up. So right now your cup is empty and you need to pour back into yourself. And you're not going to be able to pour back into yourself because the reason why your cup is empty is because you're giving too much of yourself. So with that clarity and with that self-reflection is when I realized, okay, I'm just going to have to take a step back and figure out how long I want to be away. I honestly had no goal for how long I didn't. At first I would say, was saying, you know, I'll step away for a week. Then it turned into me saying two weeks. And then I said, you know what? I'll just go back when I'm ready. And I actually just came back on Instagram last week. So I ended up taking the whole month of January off. And it was one of the best things that I've ever done for myself in this space of social media that I decided that I'm going to start taking more frequent breaks so that my life is not consumed by what I'm doing online because I also have work that I do offline and I need to give my attention to that work as well. 
Yeah. Oof. I can't tell you how much I can relate to that. <laughs> just like everything you just said, I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I mean, well, I'm in month three, so clearly I'm not ready yeah. to come back yet. But yeah, that that sort of question of am I burnt out or am I lacking discipline, that's, that's so honest, right? And I think that there isn't even necessarily like an easy answer. It's like you just have to feel your way through that and that realization that you shared of, okay, these things that I know that I believe in, that I know that I'm passionate about, if they're not bringing me joy, maybe I don't have to burn my entire life down, maybe I can just take a break and see if I feel different. (laughs) It's not necessarily that anything needs to, you know, dramatically change. I get like that sometimes my cup's really empty. I'm like, well, I guess I just have to like, you know, quit everything and like move to Bali. I'm like, well, maybe you could just take a week off and see how you feel. (laughs) Right. You know, um, and that's what I decided to do. I think that we live in a culture where we're taught you know, that we have to hustle for our worth, that we have to hustle for success and that there's no room to take breaks. You know, Beyonce doesn't sleep at night, apparently. People know what time she goes to bed. Like, you know, there's all these messages out there that tells us that in order to be successful, you have to drive yourself 24-7. And the reality is that's actually not true. You know, you can take a break. You can take time off. You can take time to take care of yourself. Um, because that also is going to help replenish the thing that you love. So that is something that was an eye opener for me. And now that I am back on Instagram, I feel good. I feel joy. I feel happy about what I'm doing. So that's also how I knew I really needed that break. And that's why I decided that moving forward, I will continue to plan breaks in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because that's the real question, right? It's not like, it's it's like, how do I get out of the cycle of, you know, only letting myself rest when I'm so completely burnt out that I'm miserable? That's not the life that I'm looking for, right? right? And so right. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, okay, this means that I'm going to be taking more frequent breaks. And one of the things for me, because, you know, I, I probably should have taken a break, you know, six months earlier than I did, or a minimum of six months. And, you know, it's the fears of, oh, you know, people are going to forget about me or this is going to become, you know, or I don't know, all the like dumb ego stuff, right? Like you're irrelevant or people aren't paying attention. And first of all, okay, whatever, fine, who cares? But also I have to, I had to like flip it and realize I love when other people take breaks. Like I can't consume constant content that like, I let, like, give me a chance to miss you. You know, like I love that when other people do it. I love when people model those kind of boundaries. And yet I thought that I was this like special snowflake that those rules didn't apply to is a real ego check for me to be like, no, okay, you can take this break. Like you're going to be fine. (laughs) Right. Right. I agree. So you mentioned, um, that you're a therapist and social worker. I would love to hear the story of how you got into the mental health profession, because my understanding is that that is, that was not your original like path or track, right? Right. Right. Um, so I pretty much, I mean, as a child, I wanted to do so many different things, but by the time I reached high school and was starting to apply for college, I, um, actually wanted to get into the field of fashion. I come from immigrant parents. Both of my parents are from Panama. And so their beliefs on a job and a steady job and going to school and different things like that, the idea of going to school for fashion did not necessarily seem like something that would bring me a career or something that would be stable in my life. So with that, I I had some reservations. And so I also wanted to become a psychologist, I thought at the time. So I battled between, do I want to go to school for fashion or do I want to go to school for psychology? 
I also, when I wanted to be in the fashion field, I wanted to do fashion merchandising. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go to business school. And the choice for that was because I said, since I do want to get in the business side of fashion, I will just uh, utilize a business degree rather than a fashion merchandising degree. And while I was in business school, I took all of my elective classes in like human things revolved around human behavior. So psych 101, sociology, different things like that. So I also planned planned on getting my MBA. And what happened was while I was an undergrad, I had a professor who was a social worker. She was my sociologist professor. And honestly, could you not, this professor till this day was such a meaningful professor and she impacted my life so tremendously that she was the reason why I pursued social work. Um, she would come to school with different cases. And just the passion that she had for her field, the passion that she had um, for her clients. So she actually worked on work at uh, Rikers Island part-time. So because she was in a criminal justice field as well, and this was a Black woman, I looked up to her a lot, to be honest. And when I realized from taking all those different electives that revolved around human behavior, I realized that actually, I think I do want to get into the field of social work. And the reason why I chose social work was just because since my professor was a social worker, I hadn't really known about other professional degrees. And becoming a psychologist, I kind of felt like I would most likely have to get my PhD to really feel like I was doing the work I wanted to do. And to be very honest, at that time, I didn't think I wanted to pursue uh, my PhD. So the alternative was to be a social worker. And it was one of the best decisions that I've made. I have no regrets about it, but that is honestly the story that got me to where I am today. So I went from I went from wanting to be a fashion merchandiser to becoming a social worker. Isn't it so interesting how, you know, one person can, you know, not to like over-dramatize it, but can change the trajectory of your life? Yes, yes. yes. And I, I that's why like when I tell the story, it's very like crazy for me to even say it because truly nothing else shifted. Cause the, even though I had the desire to study it, which is why I was taking those electives, nothing was really pushing me to say, I am going to do this. Cause in my head, I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I always knew I wanted to get, go to grad school. So I said, you know, what? I'm just going to pursue my MBA. But once I had this professor, that's when I knew for sure that no, that's not where that's not the next path for you. You're going to be a social worker, and I honestly have no regrets. I've been a social worker for seven years now, and there's not one day in my life where I've been like, oh, I need to change careers, or I've been unhappy about what I do. So yeah, she truly impacted my life. So this might be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can you talk in a little bit more detail about like what, I guess, not necessarily what a social worker does, because I know that that could be a bunch of different things depending upon like your area, but for you specifically, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? So I went to NYU. Hey, me too. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. I'm originally from New York. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. So yeah, I'm born and raised here in New York. Um, so I went to NYU and NYU, I'm only bringing that up because NYU, there are different social work programs and NYU focused on clinical work. The term clinical goes along with um, psychotherapy. So my role as a social worker, I, as you mentioned too, like being a social worker could mean many things. You could get in so many different fields. For me, because I was on the clinical path, 
that's the path that takes you through like talk therapy or different therapy modalities. So currently I work as a social worker in a clinic and I'm a mental health therapist and I work with all ages. That means children as small as five and adults. And I work with them through a variety of the issues that they face from depression to anxiety and trauma. I would say that those are my top cases, but it ranges. Um, But that's pretty much what my path as a social worker looks like. So I'm currently licensed as an LMSW. And what that basically means is I'm licensed to practice psychotherapy. Mm, Yeah. Can you, I guess, like going back in time a little bit, talk about um, how your experiences like on the other side, like being a patient in therapy, like how that has played into kind of like who you are in your work? Yeah, that played tremendously, um, had a tremendous impact. So the the backstory to the reason why I went to therapy was because all my life growing up, I struggled with depression. However, it was undiagnosed. I did not know what I was struggling with. I just knew I was struggling with something. And that started from the age of five. I was bullied as a child in school, dealt with a lot of issues at home with like coming from a dysfunctional family. And um, that impacted me as a kid. And it followed me through my uh adolescent years and when I became a young adult. And so when I was an undergrad, like I said, I decided I wanted to pursue social work. And so I went into grad school. And when I started grad school, literally that same semester is when I started going to therapy. And for me, it was a huge benefit because not only was I in therapy, but I also was just starting grad school. So as I was learning about myself through talk therapy. I was also learning about myself from the things I studied in class. So I feel like I was able to benefit from doing things simultaneously. So for me, learning to be having that experience of being the client was just really impactful because number one, it shows you what it feels like. Right. It's a very, very vulnerable place to be in, to to be comfortable enough to talk to a complete stranger about some things that you've kept a secret from the people in your life who are near and dear to you. And there are a lot of things that I shared with my therapist that my mother didn't know, my best friends didn't know, people who were my family did not know. And I did not know how to tell them. So imagine not knowing how to tell someone who you know loves you, but then going to talk to a stranger about those things. It seems ironic, but I knew that this is also what I wanted to pursue. Um, And so being a client really just helped me to get a better perspective of what my clients would feel like in the future when I started to um, see see clients in psychotherapy. Um, And it really was just an eye opener. And I personally feel like the reason why I was very impactful impactful and important was because I feel like it's very important for therapists to sort out their own personal issues because at the end of the day, we're all human. So just because someone is a therapist does not mean they don't struggle. And the same way a client is going to go to a therapist to deal with their needs, it's very typical for a therapist to go to another therapist to help them manage their needs. Like I said, it's all because we're all human. We're all complex. We all deal, deal with different things. And we all need an outlet to get those things out of us or we're going to carry it and it's going to come up in our session. And so having that experience also helped me with under the understanding not only what it would feel like to be a client, 
But it also helps me to understand that I'm not above anyone just because I have this title, licensed social worker. It also put me in check and reminded me that I too am a person who struggles with things and I need an outlet as well to um, be vulnerable and get rid of my shame and sort through some emotions and difficulties so that those things don't end up coming up in my sessions with a client. Yeah. And sort of that like myth that anyone in, you know, any type of healing profession or role like needs to be perfect in order to do that job. I mean, first of all, nobody's perfect. Right. And so I feel like it's refreshing to hear you talk about that and like, yeah, being a therapist who goes to another therapist and this type of stuff. I feel like when we put ourselves on this really high pedestal of I'm supposed to have it all figured out, like, I feel like that's when the biggest breakdowns can tend to come when you're not giving yourself the gift of like, treating yourself like a human, right, who struggles with things and has needs, then whether that's, you know, I've heard from friends of mine, you know, with young kids, well, like, I'm a parent, so I'm supposed to have all my shit together. And, you know, all there's just so many different versions, I think, of that, like, myth or that belief of because I'm X, like, you know, these things shouldn't be an issue anymore, right? Or I should have like gotten over this. And I think that not only do we do ourselves a disservice, but also the people that we're helping and loving and caring for, you know, if we're not also like helping ourselves. Right, right. It's absolutely true. Um, you know, we all are people, like I said, we all deal with different things. And life, as we know it, we can't control life. And life definitely throws curveballs at us things that we never expected or never experienced before. So all these coping strategies that you have for some specific thing and the next thing you know, you end up dealing with something that you never dealt with before. Now you need to learn something, a new coping strategy for that thing. And sometimes you're going to need someone to help you sort through your emotions and help you find the skills that you need to deal with that thing. And we all need that, whether we are therapists or not. So I think it's really important for people who want to pursue the field of therapy to make sure they are also going to therapy um, because you also don't want to end up uh, in this position where you are bringing your issues into a session. Mm-hmm. Going back to the time that you were going into therapy yourself, mm-hmm. I'm interested and in, obviously I'm like, I don't want to project my stuff onto you. So <laughs> as we were just talking about, so if this doesn't feel accurate, like, of course we can just move on. But okay. I, I was going to ask, do you feel like there were any barriers to treatment that you experienced or like, and maybe if not for you personally, maybe like more generally, what do you think some of the like most common barriers to treatment are for folks who are interested in whether it's like talk therapy or just like, you know, counseling and mental health stuff in general? Um, what do you think some of those barriers are? Yeah. So in the very beginning when I pursued therapy. I was a college student. Like I said, I was in grad school, so I was 22 at that age. Um, So that's very young. And um, the therapist that I was seeing actually did not accept insurance. She was out of pocket. And so the barrier of being a young college student who has to take the textbooks and whatever things are being thrown my way into this new form of adulthood, uh, finances can be a little difficult whether you're 22 or even 52, right? You know, everyone's income is different. So I find that the number one thing that I often hear from clients and what I experienced myself was the financial barrier. A lot of therapists um, do not take insurance and that is because insurance companies do not do a good job at reimbursing therapists. 
uh, what their financial requirements are. And another reason why is because there are, there's, there's so much to it, but um, a lot of clients as well don't want to necessarily be diagnosed with something. However, in order to see a therapist through insurance, you have to have a diagnosis. There's no way to get around it. If you do not report a diagnosis to an insurance company, they are not going to um, pay for services. So that is another barrier because there's a stigma around therapy, right? So if I finally get through and decide I am going to see a therapist, now you're telling me I have to get a diagnosis. And of course, like I said, with the stigma, that really brings up a lot of emotions for people because they feel like they're being labeled. So that is often something that I come, I hear a lot about as well, especially when I was working in private practice. Um, But finances are the number one thing. Accessibility, I can be honest right now and say I live specifically in Far Rockaway, Queens, which is a small, people call it a small island in Queens. And honestly, there's no therapist, there's barely any therapy centers around here. There's probably like one or one or two to serve the whole community. Um, and so, you know, finding a slot is, is very, very difficult versus like getting therapy in Manhattan or Brooklyn. There's so much more being offered out there. So accessibility is number one. And I find that issues around race is another thing that I often hear. The therapy field is a predominantly white field. Um, most clinicians are predominantly white, males or females. And because we're breaking the stigma, a lot of people are seeking therapy. However, a lot of people feel more comfortable working with someone who looks like them working with someone who understands the struggles of what it means to be Black in America, what it means to be Asian in America, um, you know, or what it means what it means to be a part of the LGBTQ community. And I, because there is such a lack out there, that often deters people from going to therapy, especially because I've heard some stories where you might have a Black client and a white therapist, and a lot of tension comes up in the room. Right, because there are a lot of therapists who are not culturally competent. So finances, accessibility, and just cultural competency is often the three things that I hear when it comes to um, the barriers. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. With sort of those most common barriers in mind, do you have a couple of tips or like any advice for finding the right fit therapist? I feel like for me, I'm thinking back to like when I very first, I was around the same age, it sounds like that you were when you first um, went into therapy. And one of the things that was really tough for me is that I was having a really hard time. And I find if you're already deeply having a tough time, like the overwhelm of then trying to find someone to work with and trying to find the right person to work with, that in itself can sometimes be a barrier of, you know, it's like a lot of labor and like to to have to do. And so I don't know, I'm interested if, and maybe you don't, but if there are any tips you would give someone who's potentially um, in the position of wanting to search for a therapist that's a good fit for them. Yeah. So I think if finances, I'll start off with that. If finances are, you know, a struggle, um, of course, you can always ask if you find a therapist, for example, on Psychology Today, and that's the number one resource I recommend when people are searching for a therapist, you can ask them if they accept insurance. And if they do not, one of the things, you can ask them two things. You can ask them if they're out of network. Out of network basically means that you will pay upfront for your session. 
but your insurance company will reimburse you. So you go to your session, you pay your therapist, let's say it's $75 a session. She'll fill out a form. She or he will fill out a form. And then your insurance company will reimburse you that money. That's if you are out of network. The next thing you can ask your therapist is if they accept the sliding scale fee. What that basically means is based off your income or if you even have income, they will possibly lower the rate. So if the session is $150, your sliding scale, you might only end up paying $50. So that's in regards to finances. Another thing that you can do is on the back of your insurance card, you the information there is a section for a behavioral health. You can call that number and they will connect you to therapists that are already in their network so that you don't have to go searching. You can probably call or you can go on your uh, insurance company's website and there will be a list of providers. And that's how you know those providers are already in your network. And all you have to do is pay a copay. A copay can be as small as $10. So that's regarding finances. Regarding accessibility, that can be a little difficult because like I said, like if you live somewhere Depending on where you live, you might not find someone in your area. What you can do is if you do find a therapist, let's say online, or you have a friend who referred you to a therapist, you can ask that therapist if they do phone sessions or if they do Skype sessions. So that if you can't make it to where they are, you can be in a comfort in your home or wherever you are and do something over the phone or through Skype and ask if you feel comfortable doing that. The last thing in regards to cultural competency I always tell people, understand that when you're looking for a therapist, it's literally like shopping for the right outfit. You might go to different department stores. You might try it on and realize, I thought I liked it, but I don't. You might even buy the item and realize, actually, I want to return this a week later. You can literally do that with therapy. And that's a mindset that I encourage people to have. You, do not, you are not obligated to stay with the therapist. There are going to be moments where you do have to engage with the therapist, like I said, in regards to cultural competency, to see if you guys click. The only way you'll be able to know is if you actually meet with that therapist and talk to them and ask them questions. So one of the things I let people know is always ask a therapist that you're meeting for the first time if they offer a consultation. And the reason why is because the consultation is normally free. It is a shortened version of a therapy session. And basically during that time frame, you and your therapist are getting to know each other. The reason why that's important and it's typical in the field is because one, you need to make sure that therapists can fit, um, fit your needs. And that therapist also needs to know if they have the training to work with you and whatever your needs are. So sometimes a consultation is done over the phone or sometimes a consultation is there, there, done in session in person. So that is, would be a great time. And I always tell people in advance, jot down some questions. Why are you going to therapy? What do you want to gain from therapy? What do you, what are your fears about therapy? Write those things down so that when you're doing the consultation, you know right away what you want to ask. During that consultation as well, that's an opportunity for you to feel the vibe out with your therapist. Do you like that person? And if you don't, guess what? Like I said, it's like shopping around. Go to a different department store, go find a new therapist. You might find yourself having two or three sessions and those three sessions are te technically like the pre-assessment phase. So those sessions can be a little question heavy, but you can still be building rapport during that time frame. And you'll know, actually, I'm not clicking with this person. I'm no longer going to work with you. Never feel obligated to continue doing something that doesn't make you feel good. 
So those are the tips that I generally have for people when they are looking for a therapist. Just also know your rights as a client. You're not obligated to work with someone that you don't want to work with. But always jot down the questions that you have. And in regards to finances and accessibility, those are the other things that I recommend. Oh, that's such good advice. It's like so, <laughs> it's funny, like it all sounds so logical. And yet I feel like had I had like everything you just said, you know, when I was first doing this, that would have been incredibly helpful. I really especially appreciate the reminder of um, kind of what you said at the end that, you know, you're not obligated to continue working with someone. I think sometimes the like, I don't want to say power imbalance, but it can be right. Like I'm seeing this person because like I want some help and like it's easy to put them in a position of, well, they know more than me or they know better. Maybe I'm not sure. Right. But to kind of be able to retain your autonomy and to realize that like, if it doesn't feel like a good fit, that's it. It just doesn't feel like a good fit. It doesn't have to like mean anything about you as a person. It just means this person's not the right fit. Right. Right. You know, and I even go as far to as letting people know, don't be afraid to have these conversations with your therapist as well. So like if you are going to therapy and it's your fourth session and you're realizing that this isn't really working out, um, you can have that conversation with your therapist and just let them know when I came to session last week's session, this happened and it made me feel a little uncomfortable. Or during these last few sessions, I'm realizing that you've been telling me a little more about your problems than I've been able to talk to you about mine because things like that happen, right? Talk to your therapist so your therapist can also gain that insight. But also, I think it's important too because sometimes we have, therapy can be very difficult. Um, And we have to acknowledge that part as well. It can be a reopening of wounds and it can just be a very uncomfortable process that sometimes we're being challenged, but we don't realize we're being challenged. We begin to run away from the things that are challenging us. And so that's another reason why I encourage having a conversation with the therapist as well to get clarity about the emotions that you're having. Because like you said, it could be a power imbalance. It truly could just be, we're not clicking at all. You make me feel uncomfortable. I feel very shameful when I talk to you. Or sometimes it really could be, actually, I'm running from my issues and because you're challenging me, I'm not ready for it. And that's something to explore with your therapist. So there could be a variety of reasons. But like I said, the overall idea to keep in mind is that you're not obligated to be there if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sort of push and pull of is this not the right fit or am I just being made uncomfortable by like dealing with my stuff? I feel like that kind of circles back to what you were saying earlier, um, preceding the social media break of like, is this burnout? Like, or am I not disciplined enough? And sometimes the question of like, is it this or is it this? Like exploring that question is where clarity comes from. So your reminder of like, you can actually take that question into the therapy room. (laughs) It's like so funny how like the simple solution is often not the one, you know, we think, oh God, I have to figure this out on my own and come to them with a decision. But like, you can actually just talk about that. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. Um, What does mental health management look like for you personally these days? Oh, such a loaded question (laughs) because it involves so many things. For me, mental health management pretty much is me checking in every single part of my being. So that's my physical health, emotional, emotional, social, intellectual, and my spiritual health. And for me, it's really being in tune with who I am as a person and all the different elements that make me who I am. Because all that affects my mental health, physical health, physical issues, 
affect my mental health, emotional issues affect my mental health, even social issues affect my mental health. Um, so for me, I've been just doing, um, being very, very intentional with engaging in different activities, but also a lot of self-reflection, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, um, and just taking care of myself. Because as I mentioned before, um, I am a therapist, so this is the work that I actually do. And I have to be very intentional with self-care and managing my mental health so that I am not bringing my own mental health problems into a therapy session. So I like to have fun. I like to make sure that I disconnect. Like I said, so taking a break from social media was one example of a way I manage my mental health. Uh, Also doing things like working out, watching what I eat, because what I eat, there are certain things that I eat that can actually affect my physical health. And when my physical health, like I said, is disrupted, it affects me mentally. So I have to pay attention to that. One of the biggest things that I'm actually paying attention to lately as well are my sleeping patterns because my sleeping can be up and down. Um, and I know I need to be well rested throughout the day to be able to pour into others. So those are some things that I do to manage my mental health, you know, making sure I'm getting enough sleep, working out, eating uh, healthy, but also eating, just eating and making sure I'm on top of myself and eating the right things that I know aren't going to necessarily trigger me or affect me. Having a social life, right? Making sure I'm not isolated. I'm in New York, so it's cold out here. And with seasonal depression, I often want to lock myself in the house when I get home from work. But I know that is not that healthy for me because I am a very social person and I like to be out and about. But when it's cold outside, I just want to be in my warm, cozy house. Um, So maybe I'll have friends over or maybe I'll go to someone else's house. So doing different activities with being intentional about my time, because I have to remind myself, my time is a choice. I honestly understand that people have so many things to do, but if you really want to do something, you're going to choose to do it. So I am very, being very intentional about my time and how I utilize my time throughout my day so that I am taking care of myself. Yeah, you mentioned the sleep struggles, which unfortunately is a part of my life too. I would love mm-hmm. to talk about that a little bit since you brought yeah. it up. Um, can, I don't even know. I'm like, let's just talk about sleep forever. Um, I know that there's not necessarily like a magic fix, but have you found, I mean, it sounds like you have like things that have been consistently helpful for you? Yeah. So one of the things that I like to do, I have to engage in some sort of activity before bed, something that winds me down um, and really clears my mind. And that's typically reading. 90% of the time I'm reading a book before I go to bed. And that really helps to quiet my mind because often my sleep issues are related to uh, a lot of thoughts, right? Time anxiety. I'll literally just get in bed and think about, and it's not, sometimes it's not even bad thoughts. I'll just be so happy that I'm thinking about all the great things that happened today and all the great things I'm going to do tomorrow. And, oh, Saturday is coming. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, I actually need to go grocery shopping. I need to make a list, but I'm making a mental list now because I'm in bed. Like all these things literally decide, I want my mind decides it wants to think about 
right when I'm in bed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, could you not have been this creative at like 9am? Like, please, exactly. like, what are you doing? Yeah. Right. Like, you didn't know you needed to make a shopping list before you got I know, bed. right? It's like, I get sleepy, I'm reading, the light goes out, and my brain's like, all right, right. like, right. let's, let's yeah. make lists. <laughs> for you to, you know, turn, tune everything else up. <laughs> oh, this is too real. Oh, gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad someone knows my struggle. Um, uh, because I'm truly jealous of people who are like, I'm tired, and you close your eyes, and like five minutes you're snoring. I'm like, how do you oh my do God. that? I, have so, I, I mean, I have, this is not going to make me sound great. I have so much rage about those people. Like, obviously, I know that's my own stuff. But, you know, when people talk about like, oh, and then I just like fell asleep, and I slept for nine hours. I'm like, how though? Right. How? What are you? How? Right. right. <laughs> just kidding. Good sleepers. I love you too. It's fine. <laughs> So yeah, like there are certain practices that I have in place to help me get a good night's sleep. Um, like I said, reading is majority of what I do at night. Um, and if I'm not, sometimes I'll couple reading with journaling. Uh, anything that I, that I can do to get out of my own head. So it can be reading. It can be journaling, just reading and writing. And when I'm journaling, I try. I tend to reflect on the day and I tend to reflect on the things that I noticed I thought a lot about because chances are I might think about those things before I fall asleep. So if I know my mind is really heavy that day with a lot of things, I try to talk about those things and write those things out. I try to write down things that I'm grateful for. I'll write down a prayer. I'll also write down things, goals that I might have. Um, and then I'll just write out other thoughts and emotions that I'm currently feeling and I'll try to assess what is connected to that emotion so that, like I said, I got it all out of me before I close my eyes and next thing you know, it's just swirling in my head. Other practical things is I am very strict with a bedtime. So typically, I'll depending on my schedule, I try to aim to be in bed by like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And I also stop myself from eating or drinking um, fluids after a certain time because that waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom thing is just like another thing that destroys my sleep. So I, I literally had to get very intentional about a cutoff time for a TV, a cutoff time for my phone, a cutoff time for eating because I noticed that when I eat very late at night, I wake up feeling very groggy. And I wake up feeling very heavy. So I've noticed personally that I'm not, I just can't eat late night. Um, if I drink a lot of liquids that night, I'm going to wake up maybe four to five times to the bathroom. And I don't want to put myself through that hell because here I go again, not being able to fall asleep. So those are other practical things that I have to be intentional about. And that's pretty much um, like one of the things that I do. That's my, my, my nighttime regimen, basically. Mm. Yeah, it's like you think about, um, you know, when I was a kid, I used to have a bedtime and like my parents would put me to bed. And so now it's like I think about, okay, what does it look like to put myself to bed? And a lot of what you just spoke to, I feel like like fits under that umbrella really well. Right. You know, and it's sometimes it sucks. I'm like, I'm an adult. Like I literally have to be in bed at a certain time. But the reality is, yeah, you know, I got to get up and I have to go to work and I don't want to be tired. Because especially I think when you're someone who struggles with sleep and you know what it feels like to be exhausted all day because you got three or four hours of sleep, you are going to be more intentional about how you can feel better (laughs) or else it's torture. 
Uh, and so although there are nights where I would prefer to hang out late with a friend um, or do something late, I'll let my friends know, oh, it's a weekday. I don't think I can hang out past this time because I do have to get up at a certain time. I can go to bed whenever I want, but I know I have to get up at this time. So if I know that, I need to make sure I'm getting X amount of sleep. So that, that comes with the responsibilities of being an adult. So yeah, being very intentional is just what comes down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have found for me, because I'm the same when I'm you know, usually not sleeping, it's because my brain is going, you know, a million miles an hour, like kind of like we were talking about before, I have found uh, that part of what is beneficial for me with sleeping is like being pretty disciplined about not procrastinating like during the day on that thing because if there's a thing it's like well I don't really I can put this off till tomorrow then I'll lay in bed thinking about the thing that like if I would have just done it earlier then I wouldn't be thinking about it and that was like a really interesting like aha moment for me because I didn't really think that procrastination tendencies had anything to do with insomnia. And for me personally, when I made that connection, it was really helpful. And now sometimes, which isn't to say, you know, like I never procrastinate, of course I do, but you know, it has been a helpful check-in for me that if I'm like about to push something off, like, well, I don't really, then I'm like, just do it because like future you tonight, who's like not laying in bed, obsessing about this thing, will be happy that it's like just checked off the list. I found it's actually been like a really good tool for me to just kind of like do what I need to do because otherwise I'm just going to lay and wake up bed and think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. That's definitely real. That's um, something that definitely comes up for me as well. Like I said, like, I'll think about a billion things and that definitely does happen where it's like, you could have done this and you didn't do it. So just go get your laptop. Your house isn't that huge. You can just get out of bed, walk right here, grab your laptop and do it. And I'm just like, no, I can't. So it's just such a battle, you know, so many things. So I completely understand what you're saying, too. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a pivot. um, But since we were talking about sleep struggles, it made me think about something else that I have seen you talk about openly, which is your experience with adult acne, which um, I don't know that we've talked about on this podcast before. And, you know, specifically, I've uh, seen you talk about kind of how that has impacted your depression, anxiety, kind of confidence, self-esteem, which I was really grateful that you were talking about um, because I don't think, I don't know, I just like don't think stuff like that's talked about that much. Or if it is, it's kind of the you shouldn't be bothered by this. Like, it's fine, right? And the, like, actual truth of if something is impacting your confidence and self-esteem, like, if it's impacting your mental health, like, regardless of whether it's, like, a seemingly small thing, if it's impacting you, it's impacting you. And, like, for me personally right now, um, you know, in the last, like, year or so, I've been going through a lot of hair loss, like, related to some health issues. And, like, that was my experience of, like, I shouldn't really care about this, like, and I'm being really vain. And also it was, like, really hard, to go through. And so kind of, I can relate from kind of that angle. And I would love for you to just talk about your experience a little bit. Yeah. So I struggled with acne pretty much my whole life, I would say, only because I hit puberty at a very early age. And once I hit puberty is when my acne started to flare up. Um, and I guess to just throw it out there, I started my menstrual cycle when I was eight years old. Um, and by 10 is when the acne started to show up on my chest, back and arms, not necessarily my face, but by the time I reached like maybe 12, 13, 
when I was in middle school is when I started to struggle with acne on my face. And I remember as I got older, I was just like, all right, I'm a teen. They say it's the dermatologist is saying it's typical because I'm a teenager. I'm going to grow out of it. I'm going to grow out of it. Then I hit 20, still had acne. 21, still has acne. 25, still have acne. 27, still have acne. And I'm just like, okay, but I'm an adult now. So why do I still have acne? Until I started learning about adult acne and that it truly is a thing. And the reason why I started to talk about it on my platform is because I feel like, you know, being on social media, I feel like many people will agree that we're pretty much predisposed to seeing like cookie cutter images, whether it be on social media, when we watch TV, especially when it revolves around women's bodies, that we have to be perfect. We have our waist has to be this size. Our hair has to be this length. Our breasts have to be this round. Um, There's so many stipulations about a woman's body. And clear skin is the motto. You know, nobody really highlights what it feels like or what it looks like to struggle with adult acne. The, the reality is a lot of the images you see out there, if someone has a pimple, they they Photoshop it out, right? Um, so you're pretty much taught to hide your blemishes, but really you're taught that your blemishes are not acceptable. They're not appropriate. They're not pretty. And I know for a very long time, I struggled with my self-esteem and my worth because I always just like, not only do I have acne on my face, I have it on my chest, my back and my arms. And I always used to feel like, why me? Like, like if I could name a flaw, that would be the thing. And I'm like, not only is it here, but it's almost everywhere. And so like, I'm something's like really wrong with me and I'm not beautiful. And I'm all these things because I got it so bad since it affected so many areas to the point where when I was younger, during my early twenties, I wouldn't even wear tank tops in the summer. Like in the summertime, I would make sure that I was fully covered so no one could see the acne on my body. Then I got tired of that. And I was just like, you know what? I need to learn how to embrace myself for how I look and forget the beauty standards out there. You know, um, it's really time for me to learn how to embrace who I am as a person. And so as of recently, I started to talk about adult acne just because on Instagram, um, I'm really big into skincare and I'm one of those people. I think what really, really prompted me was having experiences where people would offer me unsolicited, unsolicited advice. And I'm like, I would have experiences where I, I would literally be walking down the street and someone would run up to me and say, hey, um, I know this really good acne treatment for your skin. And I'm like, wait a minute, like you're a complete stranger oh and you God. think it's appropriate to come up. Right. <laughs> like, like I literally had, I remember walking through a parking lot and a woman was screaming me down like, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. And I'm like, I don't know who she is. And I know I didn't drop anything. And something told me to just keep walking. But then she finally come, came up to me and was like, try this product. It works really well for your skin. It's going to clear your breakouts up. And it's like, do people not, like, why do people think those types of things are acceptable? And so that is really what pushed me to start talking about it uh, online. Because even though I, I had these struggles offline, I never really talked about it on my page. And that's when I began to share my struggles with acne. Because number one, it can be very shame inducing. And when you wake up and you look in the mirror, and one day your skin is clear and everything is fine, 
And next day you wake up and you you have a, a massive flare up, which is what happens to me often. Um, but at one point when I was talking about it, I was dealing with a lot of stress. And so I kept waking up with flare ups and it made me so horrible. I didn't even want to leave the house. Even if I put on makeup, my skin was bumpy. And so I just felt horrible about myself. Um, and I was just like, this isn't, this isn't right. Why do I feel horrible? Because we live in a world that just promotes clear skin. You know, we live in a world where someone has a pimple on their face, one pimple on their face. It's the end of the world for them. And it's just like, well, I have like all these pimples on my face, you know, and this is something I have to deal with every day. So a blend of dealing with unsolicited advice, unsolicited advice, along with realizing that no one really shares these struggles is when I decided to just talk about it. And I, I'm very grateful for the responses that I got because so many other people were like, yeah, I struggle with the dough acne too. And it's really great to hear someone talk about it. So yeah, that's pretty much where, you know, where that came from. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I I mean, I can imagine that the response that you got, people were probably like relieved, like, oh my gosh, you know, like oh, it's yeah. not just me. Yeah. You know, especially because I don't, I think that I spend, because I struggle with acne, I spend a lot of time doing research on acne. Um, and so there's different types of acne and I pretty much struggle with hormonal and cystic acne. Um, but acne is also genetic. And I think there's this idea that a lot of people are I, I often have experiences where people who don't struggle with acne at all tend to want to give me advice on my skin and they know nothing about skin health. And that's also what was coming up for me as well, where it's just kind of like when people see you and they come up to you and it's like, this is what you should be doing. And it's like, you didn't even ask me, number one, if I wanted your opinion. But two, why are you assuming that I'm not doing this for my skin, right? Or people look at you and they assume you're not drinking enough water or you must eat horribly. Do you know how many people I know who eat horribly and have perfectly clear skin? I eat probably eat healthier than they do and they have perfectly clear skin, you know? So I also feel like it, it just, again, that unsolicited advice and just all the different opinions people have about acne who don't really have knowledge about acne is really what triggered me. And I was just like, I'm going to talk about this. And so seeing so many people relate was just like an eye opener for me to keep talking about it so that people know that there is a safe space where you can talk about this. Yeah. That reminder about really how harmful unsolicited advice can be, right? Like yeah. even if people have the best of intentions, right? As we know, it is not about the intention. It's not what matters really. And that I feel like that's true, you know, also tying it back into like the mental health space, right? Like depression or anxiety, right? Well, like, oh, if you only do this. And I think so much of this stuff comes from like, wellness culture, right? Like capital W wellness culture yeah. of like, well, if you like just don't eat dairy or if you just this and not to say that, and you know, any number of things could or could not be helpful for different people with different things, but sort of that idea that you know better than someone else. Like it's, just, it's like such an interesting thing, that desire to like, here's the unsolicited advice. And to your point, like they have no idea like what your genetics are, what your history is, what you have or haven't tried, like what research you've done. Like it's yeah, I think an important reminder of like, maybe we shouldn't give each other unsolicited advice. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And of course, I have been guilty of that as well. But I appreciate the reminder because I know for me too, it's like can be infuriating, especially like you said, when someone who doesn't struggle with that thing is like, well, just this is what I do. It's like, well, but we're not the same. 
Right. 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 I totally agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I am interested. I know we were talking about some of the mental health management stuff, and then you were talking a little bit about your kind of bedtime routine. I'm interested in pivoting a little bit and talking about what it looks like for you to practice self-care at work, if that is something that you want to talk about, because I think so much of the conversation around like self-care type stuff tends to be like home-based things, which makes sense, right? But we, most of us, spend a lot more time at work than at home. And so I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on what it like looks like for practicing self-care at work. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, and since I am someone who works a full-time job, that definitely is a great question. So for me, practicing self-care, um, it's a variety of things. My work schedule is pretty busy. My time slots are filled with clients. One of the things that I find important is to make, to make sure that I have someone on site that I can engage with. So my supervisor, I truly, truly have a great relationship with my supervisor. And I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, but if that is not a, a good relationship that other people have, I do encourage them to speak out someone that they do connect with and feel safe with because if, depending on the type of job that you have, if you're just stuck in your head for eight hours a day and not really engaging in someone that you can get some sort of social support from, you can feel very lonely and isolated at work. And like you said, we spend most of our time at work than we do home. And who wants to go to work in an environment where you feel lonely and isolated? So for me, I'm lucky enough to have a great relationship with my supervisor, but I also have um, other people that I, I can engage with. Um, and I work in a very, very small office, so I barely see people. So I'm the type of person, since I have my own office, I'll just leave my door open. If I see someone walking by, I can say hello, and I know they're there on site and have a small, brief conversation with them. And I also leave my door open because it's a little more inviting. So for people who have personal offices, leaving your door open can allow people to know that they're welcomed here. Um, and that can open up some sort of social support for so you're not isolated and again just stuck on a computer screen sitting in a chair all day that's number one number two i have boundaries around my lunch time i um make sure that i take lunch i never volunteer my lunch time i need my lunch time you should be having to volunteer your lunch time anyway because you're entitled to it so I forward phone calls during that time. I let people know I'm not accepting calls right now. I'm going on lunch. Um, and depending on the type of environment that you have, I, like I said, I have my own office now, but I come from a work environment where I had to share an office and there wasn't really like a, a lunch space. Um, so I had to eat my lunch at my desk, which really annoyed me. So what I would do is I would eat lunch and then I would just go take myself on a walk. So that I could get away from that environment because it's like I'm working in this space in the same spot and now I'm eating lunch at the same spot. So I don't even feel like I'm getting a break from the same spot. Um, so I was very intentional about going on walks and getting myself out of the, the environment since there wasn't really a place for me to relax at. Um, to be honest, I even used to go as far as sitting in my car during my lunch hour. Uh, if I didn't, have, if it was too cold for me to take a walk or things like that, and I would just sit in my car and watch Netflix or call a friend 
or do things like that. Another thing is you're at work all day, right? So you need to eat. I keep a snack drawer in my office. I am a big snacker. I don't like to be hungry. I know that when I'm hungry, I tend to get snappy and irritable. So to avoid that, I bring snacks to work. Now, luckily, again, I have my own office. So therefore, that means my own personal space. Um, So I know that can be difficult for people who don't have their own personal space. Maybe if there's a fridge on site, you can bring a little, you know, lunch bag and write your name on it. Keep it in the fridge. Um, Wherever your, your workspace kitchen is or your lounge area is, find a place that you can store something and just label your name on it so people know not to touch. And if someone does touch it, have a conversation for um, reasons around, like, you know, making sure that people are respecting and having boundaries over the things that you have. And I also just make sure that I am not over-consuming myself with work by bringing my work home. Again, I know that there are some jobs that can be very stressful and tiring where you feel like you're not getting things done. I am very big on organizing. So I always say to myself, for my self-care, if you are disorganized, you know that this is going to add you stress. So what do you need to organize? Because organization is a form of self-care. You're taking care of yourself by organizing things so that being disarrayed and having things out of order doesn't cause you stress. So I make sure that my files are, you know, how they need to be and the things that need to be done. If I have notes, I'm doing that. You know, things that need to be done, I really give time and attention to it. And again, I know some think we have an hour to do notes and next thing you know your supervisor is calling you and saying you need to meet with the client or we need to pull you into a meeting right things happen we when you go to work you have to have an open mindset to understanding that things are not always going to be controlled there are going to be things that happen and how can you ensure that when things happen it doesn't necessarily throw your whole entire day off which is why organization can be key um, and time management can be key so those are some ways that I tend to utilize self-care. If, if I'm, since, I, again, I'm at my desk, I'm in my office, one of the things that I do, I, li- I work in an office that does not have windows, which sucks. So I actually have a UV lamp that I have at my office so that I can get the benefits of light therapy, which really helps with chemical imbalances. And it, it, it mimics a lot of the benefits the sun gives you from having sun exposure, but since I am trapped in an office all day um, with no windows, um, that can be very difficult for eight hours, right? Um, So I have a therapy lamp at my desk, and those are one of the practices that I use. Sometimes I'll have like a fidget spinner if I'm getting anxious or, or, you know, I need to get my mind off of things. I have one of those at my desk. So I really think it's just about figuring out what is the stressor for you at work. Um, Because that's how you know what type of self-care you need. Um, And it could be, some people overlook this, but literally the stressor could be is I'm a little hungry and I need a snack right now and I don't have a snack. So fill up a snack drawer. That's why I did that. Um, You know, so there's little things that you can do. If you work in an office that doesn't have windows or it's low light, take yourself outside, you know, go on a walk during your lunch break. Utilize your lunch break. That's number one. And try to get some sunlight, move your legs, don't try to sit down for eight hours. It's not really good for your back and other reasons. And so really just expose yourself to the outside and 
those are some tips that I would have, but I also think that it's important to understand what your stresses are so that you can prepare on how to take care of those stresses. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your specific, right? Like examples of what works for you, because I think that specificity in other people's situations can be a helpful jumping off point for like finding solutions for ourselves. But just that reminder of paying attention to like, what are your stressors? And for me, it's been helpful to try to have kind of like a curious, playful attitude towards like, okay, if I were to get creative, how might I like either lessen or eliminate this particular stress? Like I I really struggle in kind of all areas of my life with having a really um, all or nothing like black and white mindset. And it's, it's easy for me, especially with work-related stress to just say, oh, well, this is just how it is right? Like, especially, I mean, I work for myself now, but you know, times when I didn't to just, okay, well, this is the environment or this is what it is. And I just have to get used to it. Or I just have to suck it up. And kind of your, your reminders of, okay, well, yeah, maybe some of it, you know, requires that open, flexible mindset and it is what it is, but that doesn't mean that there isn't anything that you can do. And I feel like a a theme that you've been touching on throughout this conversation is just those, like, even in small ways of claiming, autonomy for yourself and like what can you control even if you can't control the whole situation right right you know and and there's other measures of self-care that i i also like to touch on which is understanding that again you're you are not obligated to uh spend the rest of your life at one place at one agency if you under if you start to look at your stressors and you realize everything about where i am is stressful What's keeping you there? Why aren't you exploring other opportunities? Um, and so that's something that comes up for me. You know, the job that I'm at now, I started two weeks ago. The last job I was at, I was only there for 10 months um, and I was not happy. I began to realize that everything that was making me feel stressed out was just that I'm not happy here. I don't feel like I'm utilizing my passion. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and I don't think that I see any success or growth happening here. And that was when I realized the stressor is this agency and you have to leave. Um, And that, that in itself is also self-care because that's self-advocacy. And so that is also something that I think it's important for people to pay attention to because we don't have to spend the rest of our lives at one place. And so if you realize that this isn't the place for you, explore the options and ask yourself what's holding you back from doing that. Yeah. I love that. That reminds me of like one of one of many things that I have highlighted from your Instagram where you said that you're allowed to start over. You're never required to yeah. remain stuck or stagnant. And, like I think about that all the right. time. Like you're allowed you're allowed to start over. Like you're allowed, you're allowed, you're allowed. And not to say that it's always as easy as just flipping a light switch, but that reminder, that permission that like you aren't required to stay stuck, I find really helpful. Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely like one of the things that I, I thrive off of, that that mindset. And that's one of the things that I would share in this context, you know, like you can start over at any time if you choose to. So you have to ask yourself, why am I here? And sometimes self-care looks like starting over. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the topics that you had told me that you potentially wanted to discuss in this conversation is friendships and mental health, which I'm super interested in. I would love to talk about that. Um, Where should we start? Yeah, well, I mean, I can start off by saying why I threw that out there, because I, I, I find a lot on social media, a lot of stigma and shame around, um, not necessarily shame, but um, finger pointing 
around this idea that your friends are your therapists or supposed are supposed to be your therapists. Um, and I'm like, that's actually not accurate. And that's very dangerous and very unhealthy. Um, so that's pretty much what prompted me to want to discuss that just because I find that that is something that a lot of people are struggling with where it's like, I should be able to talk to my friend about everything. And we have to remember that our friends are not equipped to deal with every single life stressor. And I do think that your friends can listen to whatever it is that you have to say, but also understand that there are going to be some things that you go through that you need professional insight and guidance on that a friend cannot give you. And just because their title is friend doesn't mean that they're supposed to have the answers to everything. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the same is true with like sometimes what we expect from our partners too of like, yeah, okay, well, you're my person. So therefore, you know, meet all of my needs. And yeah, that reminder that, you know, they're not necessarily equipped to do that. Like that's like not necessarily what's best for anyone involved. Right. Right. You know, um, I like this. I, I had saw this tweet before that said therapy is for people who are dealing with like severely, um, severe mental health related issues. Your friends are for other things. Like if you lost a job or, you know, if you got fired from a job or if you didn't meet a goal or certain things like that, those aren't really reasons to go to therapy. Um, and I'm like that. We can't tell people why, what is a specific reason for why they want to go to therapy? There are some people who don't have solid friendships. Number one, friendship at this point is subjective because there are a lot of things that I see people uh, say about friendships, but I'm like, that wouldn't work for me in regards to a friendship. But I also don't think that it's our, our, uh, we shouldn't necessarily be telling people what reasons they have to go to therapy. If you got fired and you want to process that with a therapist, you have every right to. And your friend might not be able to work that work with you through that, you know, because you being fired might bring up feelings of abandonment or it might be traumatizing for you that you actually do need to sort that out with the therapist. Right. Um, So I do think like it's important to have boundaries around those topics. Yeah. And so that's really what came to mind when I when I thought about that because everyone cannot be everything to you mm-hmm. and it's a, it's very unfair to put that expectation on someone because they're your partner or because they're your friend yeah i mean and i also really appreciate that you're you're really bringing up the some of the stigmas right around therapy or some of the kind of myths or misconceptions around like you can only go to therapy if x right that like the box is really small that you know if you know the depression is so severe that you can't get out of bed or you can't, you know, like we, I think we all have, you know, these little like fill in the blanks, either that have been cultural messages or family messages or from, you know, whatever the community is that we grew up in, or, you know, maybe just like our own beliefs. And that can really get in the way of, you know, like you said, processing it, learning new tools. I I think for me, one of the, um, like stigmas or hangups at the beginning um, for therapy was exactly what we're talking about of, you know, oh, well, it's not that bad. Right. Like I, I can still function. I can still, you know, and so I waited a lot longer than I should have because of that belief that like, you know, other people need this more than me sort of. And I think I've since talked to a lot of other folks who can relate to that idea that, you know, oh, it's not bad enough. So therefore I don't need to go to therapy. Right. Exactly. And I, I think we, we also have to remember that despite what the book says, despite what the DSM says, you know, trauma is subjective. 
what I deal with, if it's traumatic to me, it doesn't matter what you think about it. This is how I experience this thing in my life. This is how I feel about this circumstance in my life. And so if I feel like I need to speak to a therapist about it, no one else has the right to tell me that I'm being dramatic or that I don't need to see, seek help for this thing that might seem trivial to them. Like if it's a big deal to me, then it's a big deal to me. And I have every right to process that however I choose to. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, sort of related to this, one of the other um, fears that I had, you know, and I've seen different therapists at different times for different things um, at the beginning was, well, if I start therapy, then I'm just going to like be in therapy forever, which of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But I really didn't understand how much it could be like, I am going to process this thing, I am going to like, hopefully get some more coping mechanisms or tools for like this thing. And then then can stop being in therapy. Like that I just saw it as this, like, again, like very binary, all or nothing thing. And it doesn't have to be. Right. Right. You know, and I think two people have to realize that a therapist, a therapist's goal isn't to keep you in therapy for the rest of your life. You know, when I'm working with my clients, I always let them know we're going to work together on developing coping strategies for you because you have to understand that you're with me for 45 minutes once a week. And when you walk out this door, you need to be equipped so that when you're dealing with things this week, you can handle those things because I cannot be in your back pocket. And so I have to make sure that you are developing those skills and those tools and those techniques, which is why we're focusing on these things during our sessions. Um, because I'm not always going to be there. We only have each other once a week for 45 minutes and then what? Right. So we don't want to develop this codependency where now you feel like your life can only function if you see your therapist. And so a, a very good therapist is going to ensure that you're not going to spend the rest of your life working with them. However, you might, and that's okay too. Right. Um, but the goal isn't to make sure that you always keep coming back. It's just, if you, if this is a space that you need right now, you're welcome here and it's okay. There's no judgment about why you're here. Yeah. The conversation we were having before about friendship, um, makes me want to ask you your thoughts on the role of like community in our healing or maybe like how self-care and community care like work together, how you think about like expanding beyond just the like inner self-care stuff into more community care. Yeah, I think community care is very important and it's not really addressed or talked about often, but we have to remember that social support is important. Um, and not only just social support, our actual physical communities help um, enhance our well-being, right? And that also can destroy or impact. I wouldn't say destroy, but it can definitely impact our well-being. Our physical communities can be bringing trauma into our lives, right? And so I think it's really important for us to understand that self-care shouldn't always be this isolated event. It's important for you to have tips and techniques, of course, to manage your own mental health. That's great for you, but it's also important to step out of that because when our communities are thriving, when we're thriving, our communities are thriving. When our communities are thriving, we're thriving, right? And so what does your community look like? And your community could be your circle of friends, right? It could be the people that you support or the people that you get support from and making sure that that is balanced. But like I said, it can also be our physical communities and what do you get from your physical community? Do you feel like your physical community is a safe space? Or like I said, is your physical community re-traumatizing you? 
And so I don't think that community self-care, um, community care is talked about often, but I do definitely think that that is something that people should step into more often, whether it be their circle of friends, like I said, or just their environment, because that's the place that you interact with pretty much every single day. You know, it's the place that you call home. And how are you engaging with that home? And how are you engaging with the people that are around you? Because that is your community. Um, and are you having boundaries with the people in your community? Are you sharing things with the people in your community? Do you feel safe with the people in your community? So again, like I talked about, your physical community can be re-traumatizing. Even your circle of friends can be re-traumatizing as well, depending on the type of the company you keep. So I think it's really important for us to be mindful because sometimes a lack of community support can be disrupting our self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and this idea that, of course, like, we can heal and make progress and, and stuff on our own. And I don't think that's like the full picture. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm also interested, kind of carrying this forward a little bit when you said like stepping into more of that role of like community care, like maybe some particular examples of, of what that looks like, or even potentially, I'd love to hear you talk about, um, like healing as a social justice issue? Yeah, I mean, the community care in regards to like your social network. Um, again, who who is your social network? That's number one. I think you have to assess that because some people might realize I actually don't have a social network. And it's important to assess why you don't. Um, what's stopping you from engaging in a social network and how can you get yourself involved in one? Do you want to go to a meetup? Do you want to take a free workshop? Go to a networking event? How can you expand your social network? Um, diversify your social network. Does everyone in your social support group look like you, think like you, act like you? Um, how can you diversify the people that you do like with? Because again, everyone in the world is not like us, right? And so being able to diversify the people that you um, interact with also teaches you a lot of things. It teaches you a lot about what people from those groups go through. Because again, we're all people, the world is complex, and we all make up society. And so it's important to understand how we're adding to oppression as well when we're not understanding what those the people who are oppressed are going through. So that's really important. And I also just think that having a safe space having a safe community, people that you can trust, people who you can rely on, people who you can be vulnerable with is a part of community care. Understanding that, like I said, self-care, we, we take, we enhancing, we're enhancing ourselves and putting a lot of work and attention into developing ourselves, but also maybe there are some areas of my life that I need some insight on that a friend can offer. Or maybe there's a part of my life that, you know, I just want to engage with someone because that's very, very important. Like I said, being isolated is not healthy for anyone. Communities are also changing, and that is bringing up a social justice issue. Um, I think gentrification, I could definitely say, is one of those top things where your community stops looking like you, right? So this community, and I can speak for myself, the community that I live in is the community that I grew up in. And about... Five years ago is when a community started to shift. And so 
that brings up honestly a safety issue for me because I have experienced certain things in this new community that I'm in that I never experienced before. And that's because I'm engaging with people that don't look like me versus growing up in a community who everyone looked like me, everyone spoke like me, everyone had, we had shared experiences and basically shared cultures and values. And now that community is shifting, right? Um, and so we, we're living in a world now too where we have to remember that because of different issues that we're facing, like immigration, stuff like that, there are a lot of people who are living in fear in their communities, police brutality, people are living in fear in their communities. And so that's where I feel like the social, the healing and social justice issues do come up because I think we have to pay attention to who is around us. And am I entering a community that already existed? And if I am, um, what can I learn from this community? Because if I think that it's appropriate to come in this community and call the cops, then I need to be aware of the consequences that might come with that, right? And so I think that it's very important for people to be aware of, like I said, your setting, who's around you, what does the community look like, um, and how can you engage them and get to know the people who live around you? Do When you go to the post office, do you know the person that uh, works there that you probably see every single day, right? Or when you're going to your local supermarket, you probably go to that same cashier all the time. Are you stopping to get to know that person, right? That is what it looks like to build our community up um, because these are people who are giving back to the community. These are people who are part of the community. So when you live somewhere, how are you engaging with those people? Do you know your neighbors, right? Um, even things that seem so simple. Um, when I go to the supermarket, I see the same faces. When I go to the post office, I see the same faces. There are times when I'm on the train and I know who's getting off at what stop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when I think it's very important to, especially if you are someone moving into a community, to really get to know where you are, because that's important. And that plays a part in community justice as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate all of this. And I think that it really, like intersects so well with kind of what you've been talking about, too, that self care isn't just like consumption, right? Like it's not, okay, like this face mask is going to solve everything. Like, no, <laughs> like the, 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 the picture of, you know, health, whether it's mental health or just like anything, wellness in general, it's, I think so much more complex than like maybe it, you know, people want to boil it down to like on social media. Right. Definitely. You know, and self-care involves so many things that you can't buy. You know, even if you can afford it, you're not going to be able to find it because it's nowhere it being sold. You really have to engage with it. And so I just think that it's really, really important for us to be mindful of what self-care looks like in, on an individual level, but what community care looks like when we're interacting with the people who live around us, yeah. but also the people we do life with. And that even extends to work, like, you, like we talked about before. Um, we spend most of our time at work. So what does community care look like? at work as well. How are you engaging with your coworkers? You know, people like I said, support systems. Who is that one person that you know you click with that you can talk to, even if it's not a supervisor or manager, someone like, how are you engaging with those people um, and the work that you do? So I think all those things, everything just intersects. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so too. The coworker thing is interesting, like for me as someone who works at home alone, which obviously comes with a lot of you know benefits and privileges, and also is quite isolating and lonely, right? And that that's something like in the last couple of years that I've really realized. Okay, I need to make some changes, whether it's like running an errand in the middle of the day. So I like have small talk, like you said, like at the post office, right? Like interacting with other actual people in my community or, you know, making other self-employed friends. So you have someone to reach out to, or it's, it's like almost a different set of circumstances, but it addresses the same issues as what you brought up. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the last thing that I wanted to ask, I've heard you say that your number one self-care ritual is the simple reminder that it's okay to be human, which I think is really lovely. Will you just talk a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, as people we have, because we consume so much, depending on what we consume, it can be very negative and toxic and it becomes a part of uh, our being and our way of thinking. And so shaming ourselves can come up often. And I always, one of my self-care tips as well, especially because I deal with anxiety myself and I literally have to take a step back sometimes and remind myself, like, it's okay for you to be going through this. It's okay for you to be confused right now. It's okay if you actually don't have the answer. It's okay if you need to take a break. That is what it means to be human. Um, and so that is pretty much how I try to interact with the world around me and everything that I do, because it can be really easy to beat yourself up in this world and try to carry so many things that you can't carry. So that's pretty much my reminder to myself to slow down, to accept that, yeah, maybe you made a mistake or hold yourself accountable, accept that this happened, acknowledge that it happened. What can you do to fix it and move forward? Right. So I just have to remind myself all the time that I'm human. Um, I'm not superwoman. I don't want to be superwoman. Um, I just want to be me. And I'm going to mess up. I'm not perfect. I'm learning. It doesn't matter how much I learn. I'm always going to be in a position to learn. Um, there's no such thing as arriving until the day I die. At the end of the day, like I said, life is always going to throw curveballs at us. So even when you feel like you've mastered healing, Life will life will really put you through the test, you know, um, and humble yourself and understand that it's okay to go through the things that you're going through and it's okay to be human. And this is what it means to be human. You're going to go through a variety of things in life that you can't control. Some of it you can and the ones that you can control, learn from it, take responsibility, fix it if you can. And if you can't, then you just move forward. You figure out how you figure out how to move forward. And that's pretty much how I like to live my life because I don't want to be stuck in my head being anxious all the time. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with a series of hopefully fun, kind of rapid fire-ish questions um, that are picked by my lovely Patreon community that all of our guests in February are answering the same eight questions. If you are down to totally pivot and answer eight super random questions. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What's one thing that you're doing really well at lately? Where in your life are you kicking ass right now? Hmm. I would say career-wise, I feel like I'm doing really well. And I only say that because I'm meeting a lot of the goals that I had for myself when I planned for 2020. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of things come to, come to fruition and that makes me happy. And so it really makes me feel like I'm on, you know, I'm just doing a great job. 
Yeah, I love that, especially when you said that you recently left, you know, a work environment that didn't feel as good. It, when things start to come together, that feels amazing. Yeah. What is your favorite thing to eat for breakfast right now? Avocado toast. Uh, right? I know. I know. I'm so basic. It's great. <laughs> All right. Where would you say your focus is this month? What feels most important to you? I would say my focus, honestly, that goes back to work. Now that I took a social media break and I found my passion, well, not found, I re-engaged with my passion. That is something that I have been able to focus on with a clear mind and also with a lot of excitement. And so I'm pretty much just focused on how my short-term goals as well as my long-term goals. And I'm excited about some opportunities that have been coming my way and other opportunities that I want to work towards. What's something that you think people might be surprised to learn about you? Hmm. That when I was in middle school, I was on the basketball team and I actually wanted to pursue the WNBA. Really? Is yeah. that, that's your path not taken? <laughs> exactly. That's one of the many paths. <laughs> What's something that you've always wanted to do, but you haven't done yet? Oh, man. So I always wanted to go zip lining, but I'm afraid of heights. And every time I leave the country and I have an opportunity to do it, I'm, I just punk out. So maybe, maybe it'll happen. Maybe I'll just be gentle with myself and it, it never will. And I'll get over it. <laughs> As someone who is also afraid of heights, I can tell you zip lining is pretty awesome. So <laughs> highly recommend. Oh. Yeah. I mean, like kind of terrifying, but it's also fun. <laughs> what are a few things that you love to do just for fun? Okay. Um, first thing is, like I said, reading. I know some people are like, that's fun. Yes, for me, that's extremely fun. That's number one. Number two, I love watching Netflix. I have no shame about binge watching Netflix. That's number two. Same. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really in- into like doing different types of activities. And so maybe roller skating. Um, the local roller skating rink that was near me actually shut down. So I have not been able to do that yet recently, but that is also something I really enjoy to do in the summer. I also enjoy taking walks to the beach when it's warm. I don't do that in the winter. Um, but I really love to sit on the boardwalk and I actually do a lot of my journaling on the boardwalk in the summer, listening to the ocean. Mm. So those are like my top things. And the second thing I am obsessed with buying candles. So I just love going to the store to buy candles. Yeah. Candles are so great. I feel like you and I have a lot of random things in common. Yes. Um, so you mentioned reading a couple times, obviously, and we talked about the book club at the beginning. So this next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre that you like, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? First book is a book called The Mothers by Britt Bennett. That is hands down one of my favorite, favorite, favorite book. Yeah, it's just a highly recommended book. The second book that I really love is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Um, and these are books that I tend to recycle my books. Whenever I'm generating a book, I'll donate it to the library. But my favorite books I just keep here in my house as decoration in case I want to read them again. So the first one is The Mothers by Brooke Burnett. The second one is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And I actually, my third one actually, surprisingly, is not a novel. Um, the third one is a self-help book. And it's probably the only self-help book you'll ever hear me recommend, but it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. 
And that is a book that it's a very, very thin book. And I think that's probably why I like it because it's not, not redundant. It's probably like 150 pages, which I think all self-help books should be. Um, it basically walks you through childhood trauma um, and how it manifests through your adulthood. And I had to read it in grad school. And it's such a powerful book for people who really want to reflect on their childhood issues. Because again, we're products of our experiences. So that is a book that I highly recommend and I truly love. Okay, I will be picking that one up. Yes, thank you. Um, and then the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say um, take care of yourselves, right? Um, what does self-love and self-care look like to you and how are you practicing it daily? Mm, that's such a good question. What is the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a particular favorite way to connect with new folks? Yes, I love to connect with people on my Instagram and my Instagram handle is Nina underscore B. It's M-I-N-A-A underscore B. And you can also, if you want to shoot me an email or uh, learn a little more about what I do, you can hit up my website, which is www.minaminaab.com. Awesome. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Mina, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of our family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for the show, and he just makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and you can say hi, learn more about his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said, way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Zoe. Hi, Zoe. Hello. So we are going to do a round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Yep, so ready. Tell me something that feels particularly important to you so far this year. Where do you feel like you're focusing your resources, time, money, energy, all that stuff? Oh, uh, wow. Okay. So I am focusing most of my energy on taking opportunities when they arise for me this year. Um, you know, 2019, I ended that feeling, you know, like it was a very stale year for me. I felt like I kind of passively let that year go by. So for 2020, I kind of made this internal goal to take opportunities as they arise and, you know, actually put myself out there. Um, and so, you know, I've done really cool things like making pasta with friends, but also, you know, there was a cool little uh, dog wine fundraiser event that was happening last weekend that I normally would have just been like, uh, I don't feel like it but I just decided to go and do it and also doing something like this, like an outro. Like I, you know, I saw the opportunity and I was like, you know what, let's just take it. And, uh, you know, so far it's worked well for me this year. I love that. That's such a fundamentality. It reminds me that book that Shonda Rhimes wrote however many years ago, I think it's called the year of yes or something like yes. that. Have you read yeah. that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have read that. That actually is kind of what inspired me for turning into 2020. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. That's awesome. Um, What's something that has been feeling a little bit challenging for you lately? Ooh. Um, all right. So this past year, uh, my fiance and I adopted a dog, uh, and she's been great so far. Her name is Brett. She's a half pit bull mix, half 
mutt. She's a mix of a lot of stuff. But anyway, um, she comes like she's a really sweet dog, but she comes with a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, aggression towards strangers. And, uh, you know, while we would like to, you know, try to like avoid her, you know, obviously doing anything bad, we also have to train her and work her through these fears, which means going out uh, with our with our uh, obedience trainer and, um, you know, yeah, like helping her work through her fear. And it's been a real challenge, you know, taking care of a dog, especially when you want to do it right. You know, it it doesn't always go as well. We have good days, we have bad days, um, but the good days are always like the most rewarding and she's made so much progress since we've gotten her. Um, but it's certainly been a challenge, um, but a rewarding challenge at that. Yeah, th- I feel like that's a really honest answer and something that other people can probably definitely relate to as well. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Yeah. What are you doing just for fun these days? Oh, I am a big video game nerd. So it's really just being able to sit back and, you know, play a lot of these video games that I like. You know, I've really been into Stardew Valley. That's always been like a fun wind down game that I like to play at the end of a work day. It's because it's the best um, game. I mean, that's really exactly. the only game I've ever played. So I guess I can't really say that I am not traditionally a video game person. But um, Paul and I, uh, my like friend and former spouse got super into Stardew. And it was like, it like took over our lives in like the last couple of months that I was living there. And it's like such a fun game. Oh, it is, it is like the perfect wind down game too. When you just want to farm some parsnips, like that's, that's the best way to wind down. But uh, you're inspiring me to pick it back up. I think that I need to go back to my little farm. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Can you share a recommendation for something that you have loved recently? Maybe a book or a podcast or a TV show or a movie or just anything that you think, oh yeah, people should definitely check that out. Oh, okay. So, um, I guess I'll, because most of my free time is actually spent with video games. I'm going to go back to the video game genre, I guess. Uh, but I played a game called Return of the Oberdin recently. So I guess for any of you video game people out there that just want a cool logic puzzle, unique murder mystery whodunit game, highly recommend Return of the Oberdin. Like, awesome game. I played through it all in one sitting, and it was phenomenal. All right. I love it. Um, Last question. What's one topic that you would love to hear more open and honest conversation about on the podcast this year? Ooh, on the podcast this year. Um, I think... Well, you, you throw a curveball at me, Nicole, because usually I thought it was just open and honest about in general. And I mean, it can be. It doesn't... <laughs> that's fine, too. But because um, I think the thing, uh, at least that has just come, that is apparent to me is the fact, um, you know, so I'm getting married this year uh, with my fiance and we are going through couples counseling, you know, before our marriage. And it's not because anything, you know, alarming has been happening. It's just something we feel is good for us. And it's just very surprising how many people like outside of, I guess, like this real talk radio sphere, like see that as a problem. Uh you know, people always say communication's key in relationships, and yet when you go to do something communicative on a professional level, suddenly people are like, oh, like, is something wrong? Like, mm-hmm. trouble in paradise. And so um, I think just being open and honest, like, seeking professional help to help you with those communicative measures in a relationship is not a bad thing, and it's actually a very healthy thing for a relationship. Um 
I think that's just the one thing I feel needs to be talked about more and that you don't necessarily have to have things go, you know, go crazy in order to seek professional help. And I guess this can even apply to outside of relationships, but just being able to tend to things um, on a professional level, you know, if you have the means to is actually very healthy and very good for the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better. I feel like so much of what you're talking about is like, the stigma that needs to be broken around, you know, the only time that you are going to get help is if things are awful, right? Like it's so bad, especially, you know, in mental health in you know, when you're talking about relationships, that kind of stuff. And of course, maybe you need extra help if things are, you know, bad or particularly challenging, but doesn't mean that that's the only situation in which it's helpful. Like, it's just so funny, the stigma around this versus like, you know, if you wanted to learn guitar and you were going to hire a professional to help this, just like a random example, like hire a professional to help you with that. Like, oh, cool. This is a skill that I want to up level. So I'm going to pay someone who knows more than me, right. To like help me be able to do this. And then all of a sudden when it comes to like relationships or, I don't know, like this kind of, like all of a sudden the rules don't apply. And I always think that that's so interesting. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to put it. Like, exactly. That's exactly what yeah, I, I, I love to talk I, more about. I would love to have more conversations about that. So great suggestion. <laughs> Writing that down. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund all of the costs of producing the show. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe your favorite thing about being in the community. Yeah, so I actually discovered your podcast when I was actually just trying to find long-form podcasts during my half-marathon training a couple years ago, and I've just stuck with it ever since. And I just thought it was so awesome and so cool about, you know, just having these honest conversations. And they always, you know, there's always that saying of, you know, put your dollar where your mouth is, or I'm probably saying that wrong, who knows, but like, you know, or you, you vote with your dollar. And so I was just like, you know, I really want to vote for more of these types of podcasts. I want to support these types of podcasts. So, you know, I decided Patreon was the great way to do that. Yeah, I love that. I love keeping people company on long runs. So it's fun to know that (laughs) that has been the case for you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Have you had a a favorite thing since joining? Ooh, I think my favorite thing has been your conversation, your end of the month conversations with Julia Hanlon. Yeah, she's so Uh, great. Just kind of... Yeah, I I really love to turn those on as I'm working and just kind of hear about, you know, your guys' goals and how you, you know, met them or maybe didn't quite meet them throughout the month as well as just having, you know, just a nice conversation. It almost feels like I'm in a room with friends when I (laughs) listen in on that. And so I just I love those conversations so much. And it actually inspires me to, you know, keep on with my own monthly goals uh, throughout the year. Hmm, I love that. Um, last thing, do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Uh, yeah. So I don't really have any social media, but, you know, live in, live in Detroit. So shout out to you, all you Detroit peeps out there. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is exactly what allows the show to continue. And it'll be a lot of fun for us to get to know each other better once you have joined the community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.